The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of May 6th. 2019. On this week's show, Tim Layden of Sports Illustrated, fresh from muddy Churchill Downs, joins us to discuss the dramatic disqualification of the apparent winner of the Kentucky Derby, Maximum Security. Author David Epstein will be here to talk about the ruling that could force South African middle distance runner Castor Semenya and other track athletes to reduce their testosterone levels in order to compete. Finally, Slate's Nick Green will be with us to discuss Kawhi Leonard's laugh, Nikola Jokic breaking a microphone, and other news from the NBA playoffs. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. Bureau is my co-host, Josh Levine. He is Slate's national editor and the author of the new book, The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you. We remembered to have you uh, do the intro this I week. know. Good on us. All right. The official publication date is just two weeks away. Very exciting pre-order now, everyone. Don't take it from me that this is a good book. Kirkus Reviews has weighed in, calling The Queen an excellent piece of true crime writing and a top-notch study of an exceedingly odd moment in history. Booklist says The Queen is a powerful work of narrative nonfiction. I call it a monumental piece of reporting and a gripping, page-turning masterwork of storytelling. That's you? That's me. Thank you. That's what I'm calling it. Thank you, Stefan. Yeah. That's kind. You can put that on the book if you want. Is it too late? I think it's too late, but I can write it in uh, Sharpie. Yeah. Yeah. You want me to do that on the back cover when I get a copy? I'll write it in Sharpie. Please do. Alongside the other more clearly eminent blurbers than I. No more eminent blurber than you. So We got, we got, we got other news, though. You got other, other related material on the Queen. Yeah. So I've been working on a podcast that's based – on my reporting for the book. And the first episode for that is going to come out next Monday, the 13th. It's going to be in its own feed um, for The Queen, the podcast. It's a four-episode miniseries. But we're going to put the first episode in the hang-up feed for folks who are interested. um, And you should look out for that on Monday, May 13th. I've listened to the first episode. I'm looking forward to more. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. One horse won the Kentucky Derby on Saturday, and then 22 minutes later, another horse did. It was one of the strangest and certainly the most controversial outcomes in the century and a half history of the race. And as Sports Illustrated's Tim Layden wrote afterward, it placed the main actors, the jockeys, trainers, and owners of Maximum Security, who won on the track, and Country House, who was declared the winner after a replay review at the intersection of history and shock. Tim Layden is with us now. Welcome back to the show, Tim. 
Yeah, great to talk to you guys. Uh, hats off for your deadline story about the race, riveting narrative, skillfully melded with background and insight that only a reporter who truly knows the subject can provide. But before we dive into the details of the disqualification, you've covered more than a few derbies. What was it like on the track immediately after the race? Really strange. I, I mean, uh, strange, but also normal. You know, like when the Derby ends or any big horse race ends, uh, unless there's an unusual circumstance and you're in the stands or somewhere else with a trainer or an owner, that's where you go is to the racetrack. But usually you go there for sort of uh, pro forma celebratory interviews. And, uh, you know, this time, by the time I got out to the track, I think the objection was about a minute or two old and everybody was standing around and and there was just this kind of buzz at the track. And, uh, I guess maybe murmur would be a better term. And, uh, you know, Bill Mott who wound up the winner and, and, jo and Jason service who wound up the loser were just standing in the mud and, uh, we were all standing around them sort of chatting. And, uh, it's one of the things that makes covering horse racing unusual, but you know, and you, you referred to deadline and at the same time, all of us are looking at our watches and, and looking at our background files and, and just saying, let's get this settled because all of a sudden this story I got to write is a hundred times more complicated than it was going to be. And so you're kind of like uh, taking all those measurements at the same time and, uh, and your pulse is going pretty good. So the Derby for many of us is the only, or one of the only three horse races that we watch in a given year. And given that this had never happened at the Derby before um, we were thrust into an extraordinary uh, situation of domain ignorance. And so as I was watching this at a derby party, the, it took 22 minutes. And my experience with instant replay in sports is like the NFL ref or the NBA ref going to the monitor. And in all of those sports, what you hear from you know Jeff Van Gundy or whatever is like, why is this taking so long? If you can't decide it in a minute, then uh, you know you need to go with the call that's on the field. And I was just sitting there totally baffled by why it was taking 22 minutes, what they were looking at. Um, so maybe you can like walk us through this process and did it, was there actually reason, a good reason for it to last 22 minutes? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, no, I, I don't think, well, I'm the reason it took 22 minutes and a lot of people have, a lot of people more inside the sport than I am trainers and, and former stewards and jockeys have all said the only reason it took 22 minutes is because it's the Kentucky Derby. Um, and I think those stewards were, were, we don't know this yet because they haven't answered questions, but we, I assume those stewards were sitting up on the seventh floor of Churchill Downs main clubhouse and, and, and terrified realizing what they in my opinion, and in ultimately their opinion, what they had to do, but realizing that they were doing it in the Kentucky Derby, I think that's the only reason, the only sensible reason this could have taken so long. Um, it's an extraordinarily long time for a review of a, of a race objection. Um, now, the, the replay thing, I, I, it's strange to me. A couple people said to me yesterday, is this just another case of replay run amok in sports? And, and I, I, I kind of said, is that what people are talking about? Because horse racing has been using replays to decide objections for four or five decades. This is not a new thing in horse racing. As I was sitting up, when I got out to the track, the huge video board 
was running all the various replays, which I guess the public hasn't seen some of them yet. And I'm really mad at myself that I didn't just video one of them on my phone and, and post it. Because the first time I saw the head-on, where there's a camera facing basically up the home stretch, as soon as I saw Maximum Security's movement to his right, sliding across the track and the chain reaction that occurred, I thought, well, this is a slam dunk. Someone did post it on Twitter, that, that head-on angle. By, I, I saw it on Twitter. A guy named Scott Carson, who runs something called Public Handicapper, um, posted it. And it is really clear. You see Maximum Security just just slide way over and right in front of the other horse. I think it was War of Will, right, uh, Tim? Yeah, yeah, yep. And, and, and the quotes from the jockeys afterward, Maximum Security's jockey, Luis Saez, said that he didn't intend to do any harm. He thought that maybe the horse shied away from the noise of the crowd and ducked out a little. The jockeys on the other horses that were involved all seemed to agree that this was just an illegal move and should have been punished exactly the way it was punished. And yet the owner of Maximum Security is now talking about an appeal and possibly a court case. We should say, though, Bob Baffert, who um, right. is a, you know, the most decorated he did not trainer in modern times, says no one ever calls an objection in the Derby. It's always a roughly run race, 20 horse field. I've been wiped out numerous times, but that's the Derby. I can see by the book why they did it, but sometimes you've got to take your ass kickings with dignity. But this didn't seem like an ass kicking. Like this seemed, this didn't seem like a little nudge in the middle of the race because it's a crowded pack. This seemed pretty obvious. And it sounds like to horse people, this was super obvious. If you throw out the, the fact that it's the Kentucky Derby. Yes. And also a couple things, ba you know, I, Baffert gave that quote to me yesterday and he didn't talk to others and he was very, I had to beg him to quote him because he is so, he didn't want to get in the middle of a fight, which he said to me, it's not his fight. But I said, man, you're, you know, you're the, as you guys just said, he's the most recognizable face in the game. And, and he's also been bounced out of a couple derbies by very rough riding. Um, so I think he felt like, Hey, I mean, nobody, nobody rescued me from those from those fouls, but, and, and, and his opinion is, it's not widely shared as far as I've been able to tell. And I think a couple things happened that made this confusing. One is that in horse racing, when a race ends and something may have happened, usually what you see is the, a light that says inquiry goes right up on the board, which means the stewards have decided we got to take a look at this. That didn't happen. And a lot of us found that mm. shocking that they didn't say, well, something happened. Let's take a look at it and let all these 150,000 people know we're looking at this. They apparently would have done nothing had the jockeys not objected. And, and, I, and it was also confusing that um, Tyler Gaffalione, who was riding War of Will, didn't lodge a complaint. Um, and he's the guy that almost went down in a way that, I mean, if he had gone down, there's either – a lot of horses with sore legs today and jockeys with sore joints or people dead and horses dead. Could you tell in real time that an infraction had taken place like during the race? No, um, because I was looking, I was watching the race from the paddock with Baffert and his family, actually, just because it's an easier place to see a, a big TV screen. And I thought there was like a 20% chance he might win. Um, so it was a good place to watch. You can't see that much on the track. You're looking at a bigger screen, but with a lot of noise around you. Um, I thought, so, I thought it looked, it was kind of one of those things where they came off the turn and you kind of had a moment where you went, Whoa, Ooh, you know, what happened there? But it, but it, it's so fast, and then they're running again, and I, I was immediately anxious to see the replay. But I, I 
had no idea that it was as egregious as it was, even, really until I saw the head on. Okay, another question is um, there, I didn't know this, but I didn't know, I didn't know any of this before the last couple of days, but one aspect that I didn't know is that there are different rules around the world for um, infra- infractions of, of this nature and that there's one set of rules in the U.S. and Canada and one everywhere else. And that if this had not been in the U.S., uh, then the standard is a horse only gets DQ'd if the horse that it bothered clearly would have finished ahead of the offending horse. So if this race had been held in, let's say, Ireland or England, would maximum security have been declared the winner? See, I find that to be a very flawed standard. And you're right, it does exist in some places. But again, talking to several trainers yesterday, their reaction to that standard is how can they know how the horses would have finished? And a lot of people have said to me, well, the the cruelty here is that you know, country house of all these horses was definitely not going to win. And I agree with that. Somebody texted me today and said, how could they gift the Kentucky Derby to a hanger? And a ha- hanging in a race is when a horse comes down the home stretch and he's kind of still running, but he's, he's basically out of gas and just kind of just hanging in there and finishing the race. And he's not going to win and he's not really going to pass anybody. So he's just a hanger. And the, the, but, but the thing, and I agree in a, if they had run straight down the stretch country house was not beating maximum security. I don't think that we know who would have won that race if nothing had happened. I, I think war of will was going to be a big player. I think Bodie express might've been a big player. I, I just maximum security did not finish that strongly. He finished fine, but he, it's not like he was running away like, you know, like Justify a year ago. Well, and he also finished without with two or three horses that were near to him having to sort of back off the pace. I mean, he had an advantage yes, of eliminating yes. two or three horses that may have, as you just said, challenged him down the stretch. You mentioned Santa Anita, 23 horse deaths um, in recent months, and this has been a, the most you know highly covered horse racing story in this country in a long time. And you also mentioned earlier that if war of will had gone down and the hooves of these horses apparently like very nearly clipped one another war of wills hooves ended up between maximum securities hooves at one point during this, uh, during, during the, the contact, if he had gone down and there had been this tragedy, um, this would have been obviously a very, very bad thing on top of the Santa Anita deaths. And from the perspective of Churchill Downs, how do you not take the action? If they had not taken this action, it's almost as if they would have been saying, you know, the risk of a a multi-horse pileup in the Kentucky Derby that was avoided by the sort of skill of a jockey um, to, to prevent this from happening. And the horse. And the horse. By the way, yeah. Um, to prevent this from happening. Um, you know, they avoided a gigantic tragedy and what Kentucky, what the Kentucky Derby effectively is saying is that we need to respect that by disqualifying maximum security for having caused something like this. And it's important to remember that the stewards, two of them are, well, all three of them are state employees. They're not, one of them is employed by Churchill Downs, the other two by the state of Kentucky. Um, I, again, I, I wish this, this becomes a, a whiny journalist thing, which nobody wants to hear. But I really wish the stewards had taken a few questions so we could have said to them, 
uh, was that part of the calculus you went through in your head? It doesn't have to be. They just have to look and say, this was an illegal move that this horse made. And jockey intent is not part of that calculus. If the I had a couple trainers say to me that they thought Luis Saez, who's a very respected rider, an aggressive rider, but that, you know, a couple of people said the horse did something called changing leads, which means he's leading with a different leg. And horses do that usually when they straighten out. He did it just before he straightened out, which may have caused him to be a little too juiced up and slide over. A couple of people said to me they wished that Saez had been able to take hold and prevent that. Um, but it's a tough criticism to make because it's a, everything's happening very fast. Um, you know, but yes, if that, we don't know what would have happened if that horse fell, but if you look at the tape and see what was behind him, and again, these jockeys and these horses are amazing athletes and, and do things every day at an incredibly, under an incredibly tight time frame, um, tenths of a second, but there is a high probability that we'd be talking about something entirely different today if, if, if that horse had gone down. You make a great point when you say that these sorts of reviews have been going on in horse racing for decades. That being said, we are in the replay era in sports, and it's, I think, fair to view this event in that context. And there is something inherently unsatisfying or at the very least discombobulating about the fact that we now live in an era when victory is not assured. You can't tell based on what you see in a game or in a horse race, that that outcome is going to be upheld. And we saw the consequences of that in the Derby, where the quote-unquote winning trainer and winning jockey were interviewed, and then it turns out that they were not the winning jockey and winning trainer. And so I think some of the anxiety of this, even though it, it seems like there's a lot of clustering accurately around the idea that this was a fair ruling is just a generalized anxiety about this era that where we're in in sports, where we can't trust what we see. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and, you know, before that race was one Saturday, if we'd had this conversation, you know, again, I'm, 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 as a journalist, I'm not great at, at jumping up and down on either side of a topic ever. You know, I always find myself kind of like, crawling back to the gray area and, and when it comes to you're standing to video, in the middle of the seesaw <laughs> exactly yeah and, and when it comes to video review i i i i'm always somewhere drifting back and forth between get it right and human error is part of sports but when people start presenting that to me sometime yesterday morning i was really caught off guard because Again, I don't cover horse racing full-time, but I've covered a lot of it over the course of my career, and video has been such a normal and everyday part of that sport as long as I can remember that I, I, I thought, wow, I guess we're here with horse racing now, and, and I don't – but horse racing, is, it's such a chaotic thing, and the derby is, is exponentially more chaotic than every other race, and the derby in the mud is, again, exponentially more chaotic than that, and – there's just no way on earth that that could have been straightened out without replay. Tim Layden is a senior writer with Sports Illustrated. Go check out his coverage of Maximum Security and the Kentucky Derby and all of his fine other What about work. Country House? The winner, Stefan. Sorry. Country House, <laughs> congratulations to Country House. See? See, it's happening to you too. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Country House. Country House will always be the winner of the Kentucky Derby, though. But he will not be the winner of the Preakness. I'm comfortable saying that. <laughs> Tim, thanks for coming on the show. Okay, guys. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Before we get to our conversation with David Epstein about Castor Semenya, I would like to inform you that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk to the very same David Epstein about uh, the opening chapter of his new book, Range, in which he compares the developmental paths of Tiger Woods, who specialized in golf from a very early age, um, to Roger Federer, who did not focus on tennis until he was a bit older. It's a great book. It's a really interesting comparison. And to hear us discuss it, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash plus. Last week, the center of the sportocratic universe, the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Switzerland, issued a ruling declaring that women track athletes with naturally elevated testosterone levels may not compete in certain events if they don't reduce how much of the hormone is in their bodies. The woman at the center of the debate over sports and biology is Castor Semenya of South Africa, who won an 800-meter race over the weekend in her fourth fastest time ever, and then said when asked if she would submit to the new regulations, hell no. Joining us now to discuss is Dave Epstein, the author of The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performance, and a new book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. It's out on May 28th. Uh, Hello, David. Hi, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, So the CIS, Court of Arbitration for Sport, made this ruling after Semenya appealed restrictions that had been put into place by the governing body for world track and field, the International Association of Athletics Federations. Why don't you start, Dave, by explaining what the CIS just ruled and what its explanation was for making that ruling? Yeah, actually, that's a good question because – um, you couldn't get into this in the introduction, but you mentioned that they ruled that women with high levels of testosterone have to lower uh, that testosterone below a certain threshold if they want to compete with women. And that's that's only partly true in regard to their ruling. So what they ruled was that women with a specific DSD, which is a, a difference of sex development, in which they have XY chromosomes, but still develop as women, uh, and are partially sensitive to testosterone, must lower their testosterone. So that excludes women with XX chromosomes, but who have other conditions that raise their testosterone anyway. And it excludes women who have XY chromosomes, but are insensitive to testosterone, and so might have high levels of testosterone, but their body can't use it. So actually, this ruling 
is very narrowly applied to women with XY chromosomes, elevated testosterone to which they are at least partially sensitive, and only if they are competing in a small range of events from the 400 meters to the mile. So it's actually a very specific regulation in this case, but the Court of Arbitration for Sport also called this a living document, which everyone is sort of trying to figure out. And that seems to mean that they said, we've accepted the theory that testosterone makes a difference. We're allowing you to apply these particular rules right now. And also you can update them. And nobody's totally sure what that means. So, so I think it was sort of like the court almost saying, we're kind of confused. We think there should be some rules, but you know, we don't think they should be hard and fast. And otherwise we're not really sure. But there seems to be some disagreement over the quality and consistency of the science that both the IAAF and the Court uh, for Arbitration in Sport have, are applying here. This is not by any means settled science. Can you help walk us through some of the scientific um, the complaints, I guess, about some of the science that these bodies are relying on to make this decision? Yeah, that's a great point because the court in some ways was in the in in the place of deciding, well, not not necessarily do we think testosterone impacts performance. That we know, right? We've we've seen, for example, nobody's arguing at the moment about for the most part about the rules for transgender athletes, athletes who are born biologically male and transition to female and undergo testosterone suppression and and there are studies that have tracked the performance deterioration as they undergo that suppression. So, so I don't think anyone's arguing about that. But in this case, with athletes of, of differences of sex development where they have testosterone levels that are basically between the typical female range and the typical male range, we don't know a lot about exactly how that impacts performance. And in 2015, the IAAF, the, the governing body for track and field, put into place regulations that said, okay, athletes with this condition have to lower testosterone below a certain level. And those that, those regulations were thrown out by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, which said, no, no, go away for two years, basically, and come back with evidence of why you're picking this certain level and, and what they actually asked, come back with evidence of exactly what the performance benefit is of testosterone in these kinds of athletes. And so the IAAF went away. Uh, did a study and, and and came back with it. The problem is it's not, for many reasons, the study is not very good. It actually did not look at athletes um, with differences of sex development. It looked at testosterone uh, just in female athletes and tried to correlate that to performance, but the data is uh, a mess. So I think another important kind of baseline thing that we can do in this conversation is just lay out what there's a lot of polarization here in this debate about what the CAS should have ruled and what the IAAF should do. And I felt like this paragraph in the New York Times story really got at the crux of the debate. On one side, representing one side of it is Paula Radcliffe holds the world record in the women's marathon, says she respected the court's decision, quote, for ruling that women's sport needs rules to protect it. So that's one side. On the other side, um, Castor Semenya herself says that the IAAF rule is medically unnecessary, discriminatory, irrational, unjustifiable, and a violation of the rules of sport and universally recognized human rights. I was wondering, Dave, if you could kind of make the best case uh, 
for both sides of that argument, uh, for the Radcliffe side and for the Semenya side? Okay, so probably the most sort of viral meme about this was, uh, you know, on Twitter where this like picture of Michael Phelps's long arms, which aren't even all that like he's below NBA average arm span, but um, it, they said people saying like, well, he's got long arms and that's natural. So why do we, um, why would we regulate Castro Semenya for high levels of testosterone? Well, on the Paula Radcliffe side, the problem with that argument is that we don't uh, divide sports by arm length. Basically, we do divide it uh, by sex. And so if you're going to do that, if you're going to have a female classification, it has to mean something, right? The reason we have the female classification is because there's tremendous value in having, having women's sports. And if we only had one competitive classification for all comers, um, then the best women wouldn't be able to compete with the best men. So you need this competitive classification. The question is, how do you define who um, is allowed entry into it? A man with low level in the male, typical male testosterone range still has testosterone several hundred percent higher than a woman at the top of the typical female range. I think the Paula Radcliffe side is saying we need the, the women's classification to mean something. And testosterone is a reasonable surrogate marker. On the other side is the argument that this is natural. Uh, this is a natural advantage. Uh, elite athletes always have some types of natural advantages. Why do we regulate this particular one? Uh, the evidence that um, the Court of Arbitration for Sport ruled on is is quite poor, uh, I think. Um, and you're taking you're putting an athlete here in the position of being a perfectly healthy person in the position of being medicated. You know, we've spent decades now um, arguing and debating and regulating and testing for uh, against the consumption of drugs that enhance or affect an athlete's performance. And here, one of the most important regulatory bodies in sport and the highest uh, judicial authority in sport are effectively mandating that certain athletes be drugged be forced to take some sort of medication to suppress their natural um, uh, existence in order to compete. And that really strikes me as kind of bizarre, you know, when we talk about clean sport and wanting athletes to be just natural. Um, so that's, that's the one thing that really leapt out at me here. The other is that it does feel like this is a slippery slope, that a lot of this is targeted at both concerns and fears about transgender athletes um, participating in sport yeah. and trying to get ahead of regulations governing that. Yeah, I, I think both of those are true. So in the the um, the first case, to add to your point, the World Medical Association said after the ruling that that they are advising doctors not to cooperate, basically, because huh. this is essentially saying that they should be prescribing medication for an unapproved off-label use. That probably depends on what country you're in and if that's, you know, a legitimate use or not. Um, but so we're not, we're not really sure how that's going to play out. Um, but like you said, I do think there has been some concern. I, I, there hasn't been much fuss again about the specific transgender rules. Not that there's none, but the current transgender rules are that a biological male who is transitioning to female who wants to compete with women 
has to undergo testosterone suppression for get testosterone levels below a certain threshold for a year um, before the individual can um, compete with women. And there, there hasn't been as much ruckus about that. But I do think, you know, I talked to some people involved with this case that before the ruling came out, one thing they were wondering about is if the ruling went in the other direction and threw out the regulations, what would that mean for the um, transgender regulations, which are also based uh, on testosterone? Would that leave us with with only self-identity eventually as uh, the dividing, dividing line for classifications? One small point um, that... I hadn't realized until I was just looking back at Semenya's um, on-track history um, just to prepare for this subject is that she's won two gold medals in the 800 um, in the Olympics. But one of those, she actually finished second on the track and was elevated to a gold medal because the winner was ruled to have been (laughs) illegally doping, was a Russian runner. So that's I, I find that to be an interesting historical side note. Not only that, but that that runner came out after when when Castor first burst on the world scene. That runner specifically said, "Just look at her. Like obviously she's a man." It was like, you know, one of the people who was really stoking a lot of the headlines and and turned out to also be doping. That's fascinating. And then you know, I was looking back and reading Dan Ingber's story in Slate from a couple of years ago, which is a characteristically deep and well-considered piece. And what Dan suggested, which I think is really smart, is, you know, and this was written in a moment when the regulations were all kind of up in the air and it it was just unclear what was going to happen next. And Dan suggested, let's kind of hold off on doing anything until 2028. Let's look at on-track results and performance. And let's also just get a lot better research on what the effects of testosterone um, are on how um, you know women with DSDs perform, and just like looking at that suggestion now and comparing it to what the CAS just did, which just seems like they felt this was an emergency and they just needed to do something now, even though the evidence that they were relying on was weak, and it just seems like. It makes very little sense if you're looking at kind of a longer time horizon and time period. And if you are committed to doing good science, it just seems like the real best decision here is to say, we don't know. Let's do no harm at this point and just wait. Right. But the problem with that, Josh, is that these bodies are also public relations organizations. And they're aware that Castor Semenya is effectively in her prime. She's going to compete in one, at least, maybe two more Olympics before she's, how old is she now, David? 28. 28. Yeah. So one, maybe two more Olympics. Um, by 2028, she's going to be out of the sport in all likelihood. And the pressure, I think, on these bodies to respond to this isolated case is probably pretty intense. And and actually, I think the court of, if I recall correctly, the court of arbitration for sport in the previous ruling where they threw out the previous regulations said something like, you got two years, like go get some evidence sort of thing. So I think they sort of put them on some some clock. Yeah. But again, still, this, this regulation is still 
as it stands right now, I don't know about this living document thing, how that's going to play out, but as it stands now, still does not affect most female athletes who have conditions that cause them to have testosterone elevated. Another important thing to remember is Semenya's personal history. Um, when she first came on the scene, it was in 2009 at the track and field world championships. And this was, Dave, kind of a historically great mm-hmm. performance, both in terms of the time, but also just how striking it was to watch and how, you know, she really destroyed the competition. And after that, there was what was supposed to be a secret assessment of her biology that essentially was kind of harkened back to the old times of how, um, you know, sex assessment happened, just like a very intrusive biological exam. Um, And then this kind of shift to the testosterone standard, which first happened in 2011, I believe was a response to that. And, you know, as Dan Ingber wrote in his piece, a way for these sports governing bodies to say, you know, we're not saying like, you're not a woman or, you know, making any sort of um, decision like that. We're like using this marker that's associated with performance um, and then that way we can like sidestep the gender question. Um, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say, and the, it, it even still leaves sort of a, I mean, one of the reasons that chrome, so I, I've seen one of the very common responses I've seen online is just go with chromosomes. Right. And one of the problems that even testosterone, it, it it gets even more complicated even when you do have good data is one of the seminal cases in sex testing in sports was this case of a Spanish sprinter named Maria Martinez Patino who took a chrome, was a Spanish national champion um, in the eighties took a, was given then the, the standard sex test chromosomes, which, which chromosomes replaced like women just having to drop their pants basically. So then they're like, great, you know, now we have a nice tidy scientific test. Like a cheek swab. Um, right. And, um, she turned out to have XY chromosomes uh, and was, you know, kicked off the the national team, basically. She was eventually reinstated because it turned out that she had XY chromosomes, but total androgen sensitivity, meaning her body could not use testosterone at all. So all of a sudden you realize here you can have male levels of testosterone, XY chromosomes, and still not, you know, be in a, be in a different situation because your body can't use that testosterone. So there's all these nuances of it's not just testosterone, but, but they're trying to figure out like what functional amount of testosterone your body has. I mean, you run into these like incredible layers of classification problems here. And you also run into Dave, the problem of where do you apply this? Right. Um, this is very limited right now, according to the CAS ruling, to some middle distance running events. Right. But isn't there risk here that every sport could do this and that a woman that has a naturally elevated level of testosterone in ice hockey or soccer or volleyball or pick a sport um, could wind up facing some sort of medical regulation? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the, in court of arbitration for sport, 
is technically not supposed to have what's called stare decisis, sure. which is basically means like, you know, precedent there. But in, in fact, that is how it has worked. Right. And wouldn't the, wouldn't the governing bodies for any individual sport have the ability to then piggyback off of this? Yeah, I think they would, even if technically they're, they're not supposed to, because again, that's sort of what's happened in practice. So absolutely. I mean, so I think there's this very legitimate question of, we think it's important you know, to have more than one competitive classification. I don't think anybody wants to do away with the women's classification. Um, how do we define it? And here we're, you know, I, I think every sporting body will be looking to what's going on here, um, you know, to, to think about what they'll do when the ball's in their court. Semenya so does have the right to appeal this ruling, and it seems like based on what she's been saying, she will, she seems very adamant that she will not um, suppress her natural testosterone levels and also very adamant that she's not going to stop competing. So there's a fundamental issue there. Um, well, well, maybe. I mean, what if, let's say she moves up, you know, lots of middle distance runners have tried the steeplechase, 300, 3,000 meter steeplechase. We don't know when she said, hell no, I'm not going to lower testosterone. We, we don't know if that means she's planning on moving up to the steeplechase or the 5K. And if she does that, then what? Are we going to see them just, you know, regulate whatever event she runs in? I mean, this this could get very interesting. Well, it could get ugly. If they start chasing Castor Semenya to regulate her and her alone, then we'll know what the purpose of all of this was. I mean, it already looks like that because their data, again, which I think was poorly done, showed uh, – as big or bigger an advantage in the hammer throw and the pole vault, and they didn't regulate those. So this is all going to play out in the coming months, Dave. Uh, uh, I assume we will be talking to you again because this uh, debate is certainly not going to end here. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, and everybody check out uh, Dave's book, The Sports Gene, and his upcoming book, Range. Thanks for having me. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The second round of the NBA playoffs is good. Interesting. Very competitive. So um, the Golden State Warriors are up 2-1 to one on the Houston Rockets, and the Milwaukee Bucks are up 2-1 to one on the Boston Celtics. As we speak. Both of those series uh, game fours will be played on Monday night, so we're not going to talk about those. Let's focus on the other two series, which are both tied at two in the Eastern Conference uh, semifinals. Kawhi Leonard is having himself quite a series uh, as uh, he led the Raptors to a Game 4 victory. They're tied 2-2 with the Sixers. And in the West, the Nuggets and Blazers have played themselves to exhaustion 
and also uh, being tied up at two going into game five. Joining us is Slate's NBA playoff correspondent, Nick Green. <laughs> Why is that funny, Stefan? It's funny. I don't think it's funny, Nick. I take it very seriously. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry to insult your new title, Nick. Oh, so the, the laughter was an insult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, Kawhi Leonard is the strangest superstar in the NBA. He is also one of the best players in the NBA. Um, this is a little bit of like fun with arbitrary endpoints and torturing statistics, but Micah Adams on Twitter noted that nobody has put up the numbers that Kawhi has put up in the first four games of any playoff series, 38 points per game uh, on greater than 60% shooting. Dude is playing well, Nick. Yeah, and he's doing it on the Raptors, which I think should count for more. You have this (laughs) kind of like a snake bit playoff franchise, and the fact that he's kind of able to overcome that, I think we should give him an extra maybe 10, 10 points per game. There's some like perverse joy that I got out of watching LeBron just fuck with the Raptors year after year. And I think LeBron got that same perverse joy. <laughs> there is just something like Kyle Lowry and his perpetual failures in the playoffs are pitiable or have been pitiable. And the yeah, fact and- that, Ky- that, that Kawhi Leonard is on this team, I mean, maybe it's unsurprising, but somehow it still feels surprising that he is able to bring this team up to his level. But isn't it just, isn't that the case with Kawhi Leonard a little bit? Is that, look, if you had told me he had been averaging 38 points per game in this series, I would have said, really? I hadn't noticed. Because I think with Kawhi Leonard, you don't often notice. And it predates this series too. He was pretty fucking awesome in the first round. Um, In Mm -hmm. the first nine games of the playoffs, I mean, Kevin Arnovitz was slicing the statistics slightly differently to, to get him to be the first ever. But he's the first ever player in postseason history to average 30 points, five rebounds, three assists on an effective field goal percentage greater than 65. Um, (laughs) He's been good, basically. He's basically been good. But as with all things Kawhi, you don't sort of see that, I think, unless you're, you know, unless you're a Kawhi stan. I mean, he makes not necessarily effortless, but for example, um, when he hit the the huge three pointer over Embiid and um, another defender uh, in Game Four, that kind of uh, put the game away and kind of sealed it. It was a huge shot, and he gave a very subtle fist pump, which for him was like <laughs> you know completely demonstrative. And if the refs were officiating on a curve, they would have given him a technical for taunting. But um, yeah, because when he's playing this well, you can't tell it by looking at him, obviously. Right. You couldn't tell if he was on fire, literally, by looking at him. He'd have the same demeanor. <laughs> um, Let's he, hope that Kawhi Leonard doesn't literally burst into flames during the playoffs. You, that would be bad you for wouldn't the NBA. Know. If you weren't there and couldn't smell the smoke, you probably wouldn't know it. I think that he's been under the radar for different reasons in San Antonio and Toronto. San Antonio, mm. because he came into a team where there were already established stars who had won championships, Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, uh, et cetera. In Toronto, I think he's only, Ginobili, Toronto, I think he's only under the radar because they're Toronto. Well, but that's also he's, how he's conducted himself throughout his career. I mean, his his you know he has not been a demonstrative superstar athlete. This is not Russell Westbrook. This is not 
Steph Curry. This is not somebody that's carved out a reason for you to read about him or follow him on Twitter. You're not yeah, and wearing his signature New Balance sneakers? <clears throat> I am not, as we speak. With the Times New Roman. I mean, to be fair, though, he did miss, what, 22 games this regular season for rest? So his kind of been, Load management, Nick. Yes, lo- excuse me. Oh, sorry, I'm so sorry. Uh, load management. So he has, in a way, kind of been off to the side in the wings before the playoffs. So, I mean, that might uh, have some uh, uh, effect to this, too. Yeah, and I think the fact that he's not the most visible star has helped him in terms of the fact that he just really (laughs) groused his way out of San Antonio in a way that if it was a more famous player would have just totally trashed his reputation. I mean, it already kind of trashed his reputation, the fact that Mm -hmm. he refused to play and there was all of this disagreement about whether his, you know, leg injury was as severe as he was making it out to be. So he's benefited, I think, from getting, you know, a little bit of I don't know if it's even the benefit of the doubt or just people haven't even noticed or cared that he did that to San Antonio. And the fact that it is San Antonio, not because San Antonio is a small market or perceived as boring or anything, but just the fact that their success has been so consistent is kind of like, oh, they can handle it. If any team can like handle their best player leaving, San Antonio's fine. They'll be fine. Whereas when LeBron left Cleveland, it was like, oh, my God, you're kicking this puppy, this poor puppy that hasn't won and the, the puppy's river's on fire. Uh, <laughs> that poor puppy. Um, so... Eric Kareen of The Athletic wrote a really good story. He writes about the Raptors for The Athletic, in which he noticed that a fan in Philly was taunting Kawhi by chanting, weirdo, weirdo, you're a weird guy, weirdo, which is a little bit of an asymmetrical chant, but I still respect it. Um, Kareen also noticed um, or noted that Kawhi Leonard is a bit off-center, spelling center, C-E-N-T-R-E, in the Canadian manner. Um, So for folks who aren't familiar, let's listen to a couple of examples of Kawhi Leonard being off-center, notorious for not um, speaking uh, to anyone, uh, especially the press. Let's first play a clip of him uh, from December of 2018. Uh, Let's roll that. So Merry Christmas. Uh, uh, Can you talk about your favorite Christmas moment? Not right now. (laughs) <laughs> so you could barely hear that, but he's asked to describe his favorite Christmas moment and says, not right now. <laughs> Maybe later. Uh, I, I like how press availability is for him. It's like basically having a conversation in an elevator with someone, with a stranger. <laughs> you get the same response if you ask the stranger in the elevator about their Christmas. I, nah, not right now. This is my stop. All right. And then more famously, this was in a press conference after he got dealt to Toronto um, and this is kind of his getting to know you with the local media. Let's listen to that. What would you like people to know about you? Uh, I'm a fun guy. Uh, obviously, I love the game of basketball. Um, I mean, it's just more question you have to ask me um, in order for me to tell you about myself. I just can't give you a whole spiel. <laughs> I don't even know where you're sitting at. <laughs> <laughs> A lot to unpack there, Stefan. Yeah. Should we start with the awkwardness or should we move right to his laugh? Uh, Why don't you go with the laugh and then we can work backwards? I don't know. Nick did a pretty good impression of the laugh before the show started. So, Nick, you want to sort of. (laughs) 
It's kind of like um, a chopped and screwed Eddie Murphy laugh. I was going to say it is like there is an Eddie Murphy homage there. But there's a little bit of a contradiction in those two clips. First, he says, I can't just tell you about myself unless you ask me a more specific question. But then he's asked a specific question about Christmas and he says, not right now. Yeah. Come on, Kawhi. We're trying to work on your terms here. Yeah. I mean, has Kawhi, I mean, he sort of implies in that last clip, too, that he'd be amenable to having a nice sit-down conversation with a reporter that he can't see to get to know him more personally. And well, then maybe his, share more details of his inner life. In his own words, he's a fun guy. So I think we have to take him on his word there. I am a fun guy. Um, you know, <laughs> saying that you're a fun guy is the number one indicator. Classic fun guy, fun guy quote. But Kawhi is truly a revolutionary athlete. In that there's this like total, um, you know, there's the sense that the best, you know, basketball players or football players are just like really cool, just impossibly cool, just in everything that they do on the court and off the court. And Kawhi is just a real trailblazer in establishing that you can be transcendent in sports and just be a total weirdo. I'm afraid, though, that. You know, when his career's over, it'll come out that he had this huge marketing and branding team working around the clock to sort of facilitate this uh, brand for him. Because it is genius, as you were saying, you know, kind of to zag when everyone's zigging to have his brand be boringness. I mean, it's kind of like the uh, Steve Jobs aesthetic uh, persona, but as an entire person. But the thing that the perception was that Kawhi was just boring, but I feel like the laugh is hard to fit into that fact pattern because the laugh is super weird. It's not boring. The laugh is not boring. It suggests a kind of like awkwardness and maybe we're extrapolating too much, but in fairness, he's not giving us that much to work with. Our it sample size like the- of like Kawhi being audible in any way is so small. That's the part in the sci-fi movie where it's like, oh, my God, this guy actually is an alien. He's letting it slip. (laughs) Um, But shouldn't we also be celebrating that? I mean, here's a guy that clearly is not comfortable being a public figure in the way that we expect a lot of athletes to be. He doesn't want to engage in your what's your favorite Christmas story banter. Not right now. Not right now. Maybe later. Um And he just wants to play the game at this superhuman level. And I do respect that in some ways. And I think, Nick, though, you might be right. There probably is a team of marketing people, his agents, that are, like, waiting for Kawhi to, like, win the NBA championship. And then we're going to be deluged. Not with ads that that show Kawhi to be human, but that play off of his boringness. Because that is a Mm -hmm. marketing campaign. Well, that's that's what New Balance is – has done um, in their in their ads. They're kind of and and they're the, ubiquitous. Yeah, they're the ubiquitous ads. ads. <laughs> the commercials like plays up the fact that he that he doesn't talk to to great success. Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about Nuggets, Blazers. Uh, the Nuggets uh, won Game Four in Portland. Um, the fourth quarter was really entertaining and competitive, and this whole series has been that way. Game Three, Nick, you wrote about uh, the four overtime game that Portland ended up winning. Um, I did not stay up to watch it. I just saw the highlights. But the thing that I was most surprised by in the box score was that there were a huge number of players on both teams who did not play, even as yeah. like Nikola Jokic was up to like 60 minutes. Um, you must be really sad if you're like, you know, Myers Leonard or whoever else did not play in that game. I'm just picking on Myers Leonard. You're like, 
how many overtimes would this have needed to go to for me to be able to play in this goddamn NBA playoff oh, game? Oh, I'm sure that he was just sitting there going, I know that if it goes to five overtimes, right. I am totally You got to stay ready. <laughs> I'm, I'm ready, yeah. Maybe you'd already gone to bed. <laughs> like everybody else in America. Yeah. Um, I mean, what they should do in the NBA, they should. it should be like soccer. The players who haven't played much, they should go like along the baseline and jog up and down mm-hmm. and get ready for the game. It is surprising, though, because when Rodney Hood checked in in the fourth overtime and basically won the game for Portland, because he'd only played, I think, 22 minutes up to that point and hadn't played since the first overtime or since regulation. I forget which one. But he was so much uh, more sprightly than anyone else. It was hilarious. He checks in. It's like, oh, yeah, this person hasn't basically been running an ultra marathon for the entire evening. Uh, maybe they should have put in some people who were a little uh, fresher legs, as they say. It was, it was kind of odd coaching strategy. And the other weird thing, and just looking at the box score, was that there weren't that many fouls called in the game. Like oh. Only one player fouled out, as you noted in your piece, Nick, in the previous um, four-overtime NBA playoff game in 1953, 12 players fouled out. And that is generally what happens, is that at the end of all of these playoff games, you've got guys with like five fouls. And you would assume that if you play another like two halves of basketball, that there are going to be guys that foul out. But anyway, this isn't the most interesting. Let's talk about Nikola Jokic, who mm. at a press conference after game four broke the microphone and then <laughs> was heard to comment. Wait, what did he say exactly? Someone bro- broke it. Someone <laughs> broke it. I love Nikola Jokic. There is something he he's putting up all these triple doubles in the playoffs. He's like a kind of doughy looking seven footer who's nevertheless in great shape. There's something like strangely relatable about him, even though he's like doing things and putting up numbers that nobody else in the NBA is doing. Yeah. He's um, he kind of seems like if uh, our Sabonis bonus came to the NBA in his prime, it's kind of like what we've gotten because you always heard stories of him back in the USSR about how kind of effortless he made the game and how dominant he was when he came to the NBA. He was, you know, ravaged by injuries. But Jokic is this guy who looks like, uh, I don't know, a guy who um, I can't even put into words how doughy he is. He looks like the Michelin man. Um but he just is this graceful, calm presence on the court. And, and for a, a, the, the Nuggets play fast. And he's always involved. He is their offense, basically. It revolves around him. So it's not that he's kind of slowing them down. It's the opposite. He's somehow manages to kind of keep the gears moving. He's um, really, really fun to watch. But there's a lot, it seems like when I watch him, it's sort of this conservation of energy thing happening with Nikola Jokic. It doesn't look like he's killing himself. He doesn't look to be no. sprinting. He doesn't look to be exerting himself. And yet, he is in the right place. He makes incredible moves. He's an incredible passer. Um, it is a it is the art of effortlessness. In the and there's all those those stories about him, how you know unhealthy he used to be, like how he used to drink three liters of Coke a day. Uh, he had to cut that out when he got to the NBA. Like maybe that was genius. Maybe he's sort of prepping his body by being as terrible to it as he could have been, and then got to the NBA and immediately started being healthy. So he had this kind of leg up, kind of like how guys who grow you know nine inches their senior year of high school, so they have ball handling skills but can be centers. Giannis. Um, I feel like Karan Butler did that too, but it was with Mountain Dew. Uh, I, and, and Mountain Dew. I think cutting out Mountain Dew, he would have been even better because um, it's, it's slightly more toxic sub- substance, I feel like. But this series is evenly matched in a more pleasing way than the Rockets Warriors series, where that um, semifinal is just running on 
a very public cloud of grievance where the reason that those games are, you know, officiating plays a huge role. Well, grievance and some poor play, too. Yeah. Uncharacteristic poor play. And, you know, Harden and the Rockets play in such a way that the officials really have to take a huge role. They're just forced to. And there is also just a kind of make or miss aspect in that series just because of how dependent the Rockets in particular, but also the Warriors are on three-point shooting. But in Nuggets and Blazers, you just feel like the closeness is based on just a more kind of all-encompassing, on-court, like, team-based who happens to be playing better in these key moments. That's really what you want to watch. And it just feel it feels like the outcome of this series is totally in doubt. And it's going to come down to, you know, whoever makes or misses big shots. And it just, it, it feels like satisfying, I think, especially in contrast to that other series, which on paper should be the best one in the playoffs. Yeah, it's just better looking basketball. The ball's moving on both sides. Um, you know, everyone's kind of getting their looks. Um, it's not sticking like it does with the Rockets. Uh, it's just, it's, you could kind of take away the, you know, who, it, you could put anyone in those positions. If they happen to play like the Blazers or Nuggets, it would look good. And I think that's what we're getting. It just happens that both teams also have incredibly talented stars that are fun to watch too. Nick, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks a lot. Now it is time for Afterballs, and let's circle back to Kawhi Leonard, Stefan. We have to. So we have discovered, based on a reference in Harvey Arden's piece on Kawhi from the New York Times, that Kawhi was on Serge Ibaka's cooking show, mm-hmm. which leads to a bunch of follow-up questions, including, including Serge Ibaka has a cooking show? He does. He uh, plays the role of the Mafuzi chef. Yep. The show the con- is titled... Uh, the Congolese Serge Ibaka. Yeah. The show is titled How Hungry Are You? You can watch it on YouTube. And you have selected a favorite moment for us to listen to. Have I you, have. Have you not? Um, Kawhi Leonard, I bet it took a lot of negotiating, but Kawhi Leonard did appear on How Hungry Are You? earlier this year. Um, last month, actually. I believe that uh, Serge makes him a penis pizza. It's a pizza topped with, I assume, cows, testicles, or a penis or something, but the uh, delicacy of one sort or another. Um, so here's my favorite section of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the show. The producers are brilliant. They deserve some sort of award, a Webby or something, because there's a scene where Serge is asking Kawhi about taking care of his family and, you know, making money in the NBA and what his motivations are. And I want to listen to that. And then there's an abrupt transition. And the, the thing to listen for here is the music that the producers underlay during this part of the interview with Kawhi Leonard. Here we go. You know, as a man, you try to decide on how you're going to take care of your moms and family. And like I said, how I'm going to buy a house. That was always like something in the back of my mind. Do you have a burner account? No. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Come on. Yeah, you do, bro. Come on, man. No, 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 no. If you say you don't, I'm, I'm just go, I'm gonna leave, man. You do. No, I don't, bro. <laughs> that is like brilliant editing. Uh, I I can't argue with that. And let's name our afterballs in honor of Serge Ibaka and his team. Uh, Mafuzi Chef. Hats off to you, Mafuzi Chef. 
Stefan, what is your Mafuzi chef? Most coverage of the Kentucky Derby carefully noted that this was the first time that a winner had been disqualified specifically because of an infraction on the track. Some went on to mention the other winner that was stripped of victory, a horse named Dancer's Image, who tested positive for a banned drug after the race in 1968. The story is pretty crazy. Dancer's Image won by a length and a half over a horse named Forward Pass. But urine sample number 3956U revealed traces of the anti-inflammatory and painkiller phenylbutazone, commonly known as Butte. The way that you just uh, related that made me think that this horse had previously been required to give 3,955 <laughs> other urine samples. I know that racehorses pee a lot. They do Stephen, pee a lot. But that's a lot. That is a lot. Poor, poor dancer's image. Churchill Downs President Wathen Nebelkamp told Sports Illustrated turf writer Whitney Tower that the state's Racing Act rule was as plain as a goat's ass going uphill. Any horse that tested positive must be disqualified. SI ran the story on its cover. The headline was Derby Drug Mystery, The Horse, The Trainer, The Gun, The Pill. And the photo was uh, an injection gun with the pill at the end of it on top of a, a photo of Dancer's image. It took three days for racing authorities to issue their ruling disqualifying Dancer's image. According to Whitney Tower's story, the testing lab notified one of the Derby stewards at 1130 on the night of the race of a positive test on the day's card. The steward decided to wait until Monday morning to open the sealed envelope revealing the result. The news wasn't announced then until midday Tuesday. The New York Times played the story at the top of page one on Wednesday. Derby winner disqualified as drugged was the headline. The owner of Dancer's Image was a New England blue blood named Peter Fuller. The family had so much money from its Boston Cadillac dealerships that when he served as governor of Massachusetts in the 1920s, Fuller's father didn't cash his paychecks and instead gave them to his children as souvenirs. But Peter Fuller was widely respected in the horse industry. <laughs> there was never a whiff of scandal around him. Or you like that story, Josh? Huh? <laughs> I mean, number one. That's a you're rich if you do that. Yeah. Number two, if you were this guy's child, be like, thanks, dad, for the souvenir. Souvenir. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. So rich Fuller, people though, thanks. rich people thanks. Fuller was widely respected in the horse industry. There was never a whiff of scandal around him or his trainers, but there was some mystery around the veterinarian that Fuller hired to take care of Dancer's image, son of native Dancer, the week of the Derby. The horse had some ankle issues, and the vet, Alex Harthill, admitted to giving him a normal dose of four grams of butte six days before the race. That was perfectly legal. It should have been plenty of time for the drug to clear the horse system, the positive test indicated that Dancer's image might have been given another dose closer to the race date. Harthill denied having done so. Harthill had treated derby winners, including Citation in 1948, but he had also been linked to illegally drugging horses twice before in his career. But he and the owner, Peter Fuller, suggested that someone had tampered with Dancer's image. Why? The theories ranged from resentment that a horse bred and trained in Maryland was a 
favorite to win the Kentucky Derby, and that Harthill, as a local veterinarian, might have sabotaged his out-of-town client. Another theory was that conservative Kentuckians didn't look kindly on Peter Fuller, having donated the $62,000 winner's purse at a race two days after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. to King's widow Coretta. That had happened just a month before the Kentucky Derby in April of 1968. Whitney Tower reported that Fuller had received an anonymous telegram reading, suggest you give the Derby purse to either Rap Brown or Stokely Carmichael, two black militants. Whitney Tower also reported rumors that Butte had been crushed into powder and sprinkled onto dancers' images oats, that members of the horse's stable had accused one another of messing around with the colt's feed, and that a suspicious bank deposit and transfer had occurred just days before the race. Fuller said that security at Churchill Downs was lax. He told Whitney Tower that he had found a Dagart asleep on the job. So there was all this insinuation of skullduggery around the horse's uh, positive drug test. Why Dancer's image tested positive was never resolved. Fuller spent four years and a quarter of a million dollars fighting the disqualification after a contentious three-week hearing in which Fuller's lawyers challenged the drug testing process and findings. The State Racing Commission upheld the result. A Kentucky state court overturned that ruling in 1970, temporarily giving Dancer's image the victory. But in 1972, the state's highest court reinstated the original ruling. A month after the derby, Dancer's image ran in the Preakness. The horse's urine tested negative this time, but Dancer's image was disqualified again for bumping into another horse in the home stretch, just like at the Kentucky Derby on Saturday. Dancer's image died in 1992. Peter Fuller died in 2012. Josh, what's your Mafuzi chef? Last week, ESPN announced that it was shutting down the print version of its magazine, a.k.a. ESPN the magazine, this September after a 21-and-a-half-year run. That was longer than I thought it had been. Most TV shows, too. Uh, first, I want to say RIP to EVM, which featured a lot of great writers, ran great stories from the likes of Don Van Natta, the Fanaru brothers, Mina Kimes, the hang-up legend. Uh, it must be said, though, that not everyone remembers the mag fondly. Jason Zinneman, the comedy columnist for the New York Times, who has written occasionally for Slate, tweeted last week, the first magazine job I interviewed for was this place. They asked me to give them 50 story ideas in the application process. I did. They didn't give me the job, but did run some of my ideas without me, which I would have subtweeted if Twitter existed back then. Still sad news. I have several thoughts about this tweet. Number one, just an allegation. Uh, I have no reason not to believe Jason, but number one. Number two, the still sad news is a truly excellent and sincere touch. Number three, stealing people's story ideas is bad. Don't do it. Number four, 50 story ideas. I was discussing with my- uh, I did. I think you did. You did that exactly right. You sort of went from four to one instead of from one to four. I was discussing this with my Slate colleagues last week, one of whom said, I feel like I've barely had 50 story ideas over my entire career, which is definitely a sentiment I can relate to. Another colleague began a countdown from one to 50. Number one, basketball. Number two, football. Number three, baseball, to which I added sports on a boat and sports with a goat. So we're up to five now, Stefan. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, ben Mathis Lilly then chimed in with, what if the seven dwarves were sports? Count says seven ideas. Okay, so that brings us up to 12, only 38 to go. You ready? 13. Michael Jordan is better than LeBron James. 14. LeBron James is better than Michael Jordan. 15. LeBron James and Michael Jordan are exactly the same. 16. By comparing LeBron James and Michael Jordan, we're perpetuating an outmoded and frankly damaging hierarchical vision of society. 17. The problem with kids today is that they want a goddamn trophy for refusing to compare LeBron James and Michael Jordan. 18. What is the history of the participation trophy? I actually heard this one on a podcast, but no one listens to podcasts, so I think I can slip that through. Number 19, LeBron James's podcast is better than Michael Jordan's podcast. Number 20, Michael Jordan doesn't actually have a podcast. What does that say about Michael Jordan's legacy? 21, Scottie Pippen doesn't have a podcast. What does that say about Scottie Pippen's legacy? Number 22, Scottie Pippen doesn't have a podcast. What does that say about LeBron James's legacy? 23, the 23 best players to ever wear the number 23. This is actually 23 ideas. Somebody's already done that story. Has to have been done. (laughs) Number 46, in defense of my list of the 23 best players to ever wear the number 23, yes, Brian Bellows is better than LeBron James, who is either better or worse than Michael Jordan. 47, Brian Bellows was once touted as the best prospect since Wayne Gretzky. He is now a broker at investment bank Piper Jaffray, but he's more than just a couple of lines I just pasted from a Wikipedia entry, probably. Number 48, the Minnesota North Stars. They're not just a team listed on Brian Bellows' Wikipedia page. They changed hockey and America, probably. Number 49, hockey and America, a match made somewhere that's basically Canada. And finally, Number 50, sports in a house and sports with a mouse. That is actually 51 ideas, Stefan, which just goes to show you how much I want this job. Hire me. You're hired. Thank you. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us 50 ideas for the show at hangup at slate.com. We will or will not use them depending on their quality. If you're still here, you'll probably want even more Hang Up and Listen, the podcast. In our bonus segment this week, Stefan and I talk with David Epstein about Tiger Woods and Roger Federer. There's only a small number of domains where we see prodigies who are on the level of adult performance as little kids. And and that has been occasionally, you know, golf with someone like Tiger, but more often chess and playing classical music. Who's better? Compare, contrast. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.